We are in Ephesians, and we are in chapter 2 now. After five weeks of being in chapter 1, things are picking up pace a little bit. We're moving a little faster. In fact, we're going to cover 10 verses today. That's just, that's crazy. We've been doing like two at a time and three at a time, and then we're going to go 10. And so just to jog your memory... Because uh, probably most of you don't think about the sermon content during the week as much as I do. I don't. My expectation is not that you think about this at the level that I think about this. But just to jog our memory, chapter one, Paul greets the Ephesian church. Uh, and then he, he launches into this almost poem about the blessings that uh, the believer in Jesus has. And the key phrase there is in Christ. Uh, the blessings from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. So he covers all the members of the Trinity. And then, as we saw last week, Paul stops and then he prays for the church. He prays that not only would they receive those blessings, but that God would give the, the follower of Jesus and the followers of Jesus collectively a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to really be able to, to grasp and understand and, and then put into practice the things that God has given us. And so in this section now, Paul is giving us the clearly delineated condition of mankind apart from God. And then he's going to give us a clearly delineated condition of mankind when we are reconciled to God. And then he's going to go back and say, and this is how that gap is bridged. That's how you get from point A to point B. That's what this section is about. So let's focus on uh, salvation this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And let me just define the word salvation for us before we get to the text. The term salvation encompasses the total work of God by which he seeks to rescue man from the ruin and doom and power of sin and then also bestows upon mankind the wealth of his grace encompassing several things, eternal life, a provision for abundant life now. We know Jesus said that in John chapter 10. Uh, the, the wealth of his grace uh, pertaining to eternity and our glory with him, which is yet to come. So this idea of salvation comes from the Greek word soteria, which is derived from the word soter, which means savior. And so it all has to do with salvation and savior. Those words are all bound up together in the same root. And so the word salvation communicates the thought of deliverance, safety, preservation, Praise God. Soundness, restoration, healing. It includes redemption and reconciliation with God. Uh, Jesus' propitiation, the conviction of sin by the Spirit, our repentance, faith, and regeneration, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, glorification, preservation. All these things, it's all like salvation is a big, big tent. Right? And all these things can exist under that tent called salvation. So let's look at the text this morning. We're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Some of the most powerful truths of the gospel are in this passage in Ephesians. And you, verse 1, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, so much here. I just, can, can we just take, I, I plan 45 minutes. Can we just go 90 this morning? Who's game for 90? No? Okay. No takers. All right. One of one of you, a masochist. I like to suffer for Jesus. 90 minutes. Okay. Ephesians 2. Let's go back and just pick up that first section. This is the condition of fallen humanity. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You just kind of swept into the flow of the, the world system. We talked about the cosmos back in First John, right? You were following... The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is a pretty uh, all-encompassing statement about humanity. There's really no exceptions, and the language here doesn't allow for this. This is the condition of fallen humanity. Uh, Any person born into the world that's breathing air that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, this is the reality of their spiritual condition, okay? Dead in trespasses and sin. Let's just stop and talk about what dead means. Uh, It's a consistent analogy used all through the scriptures. In fact, Luke 15, 24, if you remember that prodigal parable, the the parable of the prodigal, we, we call it the prodigal son, but really it's the prodigal father. If there's anybody who's lavishing extreme, uh, extremely on anybody else, it's the dad with the grace and the love that he has for the son. And, and so in that parable, he says, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. So we, we, we go separated, lost, in rebellion. That's what dead means. It's, it's not the total moral inability to respond to God or his revelation. As we're told in 2 Timothy 3 that God's word is sufficient for people to to understand it and respond to it because it's God's word, right? So dead doesn't mean inability to respond to God's uh, plea to be reconciled. It just means uh, separated from God, lost, and in rebellion. In fact, uh, Paul would use dead in Romans 6, 11. He says to the believers in Jesus, count yourselves dead to sin. Well, does that mean, if we're going to be consistent with the word use, that dead means we're no longer morally able to sin when we're tempted? Well, of course not. We are, we, we do, we sin when we're tempted, even as believers sometimes. So we are to, what Paul's saying is we are to separate ourselves from sin in the same way that once our sins separate us from God, right? So it's separation. So to be clear, deadness here connotes the idea of being separated, not the incapacity of the will to respond to God's appeal to be reconciled. Then he says this about the fallen person. Right? He says they were following Satan. We were following Satan. And that we're all slaves to the passions of our flesh. 
That doesn't mean that people without Jesus can't choose to not do something incredibly wicked. It just means at the end of the day, the thing that's driving us is not uh, the Holy Spirit causing righteousness in us. It's we're, we're just prone to follow our sinful nature. And, and the result of that reality, that we're slaves to the passions of our flesh, is that we were all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's an all-inclusive statement, right? Children of wrath under the sentence of death, separation eternal from all that is good and righteous and holy because of our sin. Because there's no way for God to justify sin or overlook sin or wink at sin. I want to just stop and as an aside here, I just want to say that God's wrath is a particularly unpopular doctrine in the church today in Western culture. We've, we've moved away from the reality. We, we, we love that God is love. Of course, we've redefined love to mean me. If you love me, make much of me, right? God's like, that's not how this works. If I love you, uh, you make much of the one who gives the love, not much of the one who's receiving the love. And we, we flip that upside down, and then we don't even want to talk about God gets angry or God has wrath because that's just, that's unpopular, you know? We, we're in a generation where it's like, you can't even in, in, in polite circles talk about how you punish your children. It's like, oh, you spank? Oh, oh. Okay, I'm going to go stand over here. I'm not sure I can even be near you. You, you barbarian. You spank your child. You know that we're at that place. So it's, it's totally unpopular at the, at, the, at the religious level, at the theological level, to say, "Well, God, ha- God has wrath." Okay, not God is wrath, but God has wrath. In fact, I would just challenge you to think, as as parents, or as married people, or as just single people, about the people in your life that you love deeply. If they wronged you deeply, do you get angry? Well, you, of course you do because you love deeply. So, so love has this other side to the coin. This way, when I really love somebody, when I deeply care about them and they do something incredibly boneheaded, especially if it's directed at me, I, I'm angry about it. I'm frustrated with it. Or if they do something to harm themselves, I'm angry about that because I love them and care about them. So we, we can't, can't separate these things about God from one another. God's wrath is unpopular in our day, but that's just too bad. It's, it's what scripture says. And God has wrath and, and people apart from the saving relationship with Jesus Christ are still objects of God's wrath. Now, people have the wrong question in mind when they think of God's wrath and judgment. People will typically ask me because I'm a pastor. And, and so they're just like, you, you know everything about the Bible. And I'm like, uh, like that much probably after 20 years of study. Um, but here's, here's the question that people typically ask me. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Well, that's a powerful question. There's so much emotion behind that question. How could a loving God, and I'm like, well, thank you for acknowledging that God is a loving God, because he is. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? And I, and I just have to stop and, and say to them in love, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question actually should be, given the sinful rebellion of mankind against our creator, Given our propensity to only ever want our own way in rebellion against him, how could it be that he would ever consider making a way for us to even escape justice? You see what we've done? We've taken the question, we've inverted it. 
And we've made it focused on us. I said, how could God, if, he, if he's such a loving God, how could he ever treat me with anger? How could he ever be angry at me for doing the things I just want to do? Why would he ever see me through that lens? And you go, well, put it back up right. Flip that question back up the way it's supposed to be and ask it this way. How can a perfect and holy and righteous God know what I thought about yesterday and not burn me to ashes where I stand right now? That's the question. That's the question. The culture has labored long and hard to redefine sin. And when you downplay sin and you downplay its severity, you lose the understanding of the wrath of God. You lose the understanding of all these doctrines that are tied to the reality of sin and the consequences of sin when God is a holy God. And then you get to verse 4. Look at this. Verse 4, we'll read through verse 7. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Paul just has to throw that in there. He's so excited about this, right? He made us alive by grace. You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You want to know the best two words in the whole Bible? The first two words are verse four. But God. I mean, what did he just say to us in the first verses of chapter two? Your situation is bleak. There's zero hope. You're an object of God's wrath. You're, you're going to hell. But God. <laughs> maybe, maybe, like, we would just stop the sermon at this point, take five minutes, get some coffee and come back. Like that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. But God, those are the best two words of the whole Bible. Because we were doomed. We were in rebellion and sin and our hearts were sick and incurably so. And God stepped in. But God, being rich in mercy, having this great love with which he's loved us, made us alive by grace. We've been saved. He raised us up and seated us with Christ Jesus. He shows his immeasurable riches and grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Key phrase. Did we talk about that chapter one? Yes. Okay. But God, he he steps in. He says, I'm not willing to leave sinful humanity, rebellious creation that I made. Can you just imagine that? Like what's the closest we can even come to that is having kids. And you you have like five or six or 18 kids, right? Some of you are just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat the Duggars, man. We got to get, get started. Right? Have like 18 kids and then, and then they all turn on you. They all just get together and say, you know what we need to do? We just need to like, we need to kill mom and dad and take over the house. Can you, can you imagine? Like, I don't know what kind of parent you'd have to be to result in those kind of kids. But, but just, just imagine, I, I, I just can't paint a more a scenario that even comes close to the reality between the relationship with God who made everything and humanity, the chief of his creation in his image and the rebellion of humanity towards our creator. And in the midst of that, he would still say, I'm rich in mercy towards you. I have a great love for you. 
I want to make you alive by grace. I want to raise you up and not just make you alive, not just reset the, the score so that you're at ground zero and you can start over again because what, what good would that do? Because with the next breath, we're sinning and then we're in the deficit, right? Not just, I want to, I want to equal the playing field. I want to, I want to raise you up and seat you with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. I want to show my immeasurable riches and my grace and kindness towards you, even though you're rebelling against me and you're, you're dead set on sinning and hurting yourself and hurting other people, I want to show you grace. What kind of God is that? It's the best words in the whole Bible. But God. And then, and then what he's doing is he's really showing us the condition of saved humanity. Where he's laid out for us the condition of, of sinful humanity. And now he's showing us the condition of saved humanity. All these things. What did we just talk about? Right? We were the recipients of mercy and, and the great love of God. And, and now we're alive because of what Christ has done for us. And we receive it in faith because of the grace of God. We've been raised up and seated with Christ Jesus. You're like, I'm seated right here in the, on the blacktop at Cedar Home Elementary School. Yes, you are. But in positionally, right, you are with Christ Jesus right now in the heavenlies. He, you, that's how God sees you, right? And, and, and you're the recipient of God's riches and grace and, and all these, in this kindness of God. It's like, okay, so how does a person get from point A to point B? How does a person get from being an object of God's wrath to seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Well, Paul is a great orator. He's a great debater. And he, this is one of the things Paul does really well. It's called an interlocutor. And he anticipates what his reader or his objector might say to him at any given moment. So he's like, okay, so this is point A and this is point B. And then the person who's reading this is going to say, well, how does a person get from point A to point B? How do they make that transition from being an object of wrath to being the recipient of the riches and grace of God? And this is what he says. For by grace, verse 8, you've been saved through faith faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of your works, your efforts, because if it was, you would boast about it. (laughs) But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance that we should walk in them. So how do we get from here to there, fallen objects of wrath to being souls saved and being formed into a masterpiece, a workmanship. Well, he says, verse eight, right? By grace, you've been saved. So grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. He looks upon you, not based on anything that you have done, any meritorious work. You say, oh, I, I tried real hard this week, God. I cleaned my room, cleaned the house. I love my kids well. I love my spouse well. Is that worth anything to you? Because I, like, like, I know I got this mountain of sin over here, but I, but I did like, like a, little, a little bit of this good stuff over here. And he says, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. My grace to you is undeserved. My grace to you is unmerited. That's what grace is. We think about mercy and grace and we get those things confused, right? So, so I'm going to go out um, this weekend. I'm going to buy a brand new Honda Civic SI because Shrock and I talk about that all, all the time. I, I'm, I'm just making this up, by the way. I'm not going to go buy a brand new. My wife's in the back going, really? And the money for that is going to come from where? <laughs> right? So I'm going to go out and buy the brand new four-door because it's cheaper on the insurance than the two-door. We have the four-door Honda SI. It's got a little turbo boost in it, and it's nice. And, and, then, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to loan it to you. I'm going to loan it to you on Friday. 
and, and you're excited because you get to drive my new car. And in the process of driving my new car up and down I-5 at speeds excessive to the speed limit, we won't say how fast you're going, you manage to wreck my new Honda SI, my Civic SI. Justice says you will recompense me. You will buy me a new Honda Civic SI and replace the one that you have wrecked. That's justice. You owe me now. You're in the deficit, right? Mercy says, I forgive your debt. You don't have to replace the car. I'm glad you're alive. We'll call it even. Grace is, I'm glad you're alive. I'm sorry that you wrecked my car. Let's go to the dealership so I can buy you a new car. Right? Let's go to the dealership and I'm going to buy you a new Honda SI, Civic SI. That's grace. I mean, that's the last thing in the world that you deserve. You don't even deserve the mercy, really. You have to be a pretty good person to go, yeah, you're alive. I'm glad you're alive. I value you over my new car. I'm not sure I'm there. Well, some of you may be. Others of you, I'm not there. I'm not going to name names. But I just, I mean, just try to imagine the kind of person who has that kind of grace. To say, I'm going to go buy you a new car after you have damaged and wrecked mine. That, that's, that's, that's what we're dealing with here. That's just such a small, by comparison, such an infinitesimally small uh, demonstration of what grace is. But, but compared to mercy, we just get it confused, but it's not mercy. You have received mercy and kindness, but you've also received grace. God is lavishing things on you that you have not earned, that you do not deserve. In fact, you've done the opposite. You have earned and deserved the opposite, and yet he's lavishing you with these things. It's crazy. Just consider a few reminders of what we've discovered about God's grace as we've read through Ephesians one and two. God chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. In chapter one, verse four, grace has given us all these spiritual blessings. Grace has determined that we're going to be like Jesus and that we're going to be with Jesus one day. Grace has made us acceptable in Christ Jesus before God. Grace Proved the blood of Christ that washed us from our sins. Chapter 1, verse 7. Grace is what reached out to us when we were dead in our sins and headed to hell. We just read that in the opening of chapter 2. Grace has loved us. Grace gives us life. Grace has secured our future. Grace has secured our salvation. I don't know that we could talk enough about grace. Everything that we possess as believers in Jesus is ours through grace and by the grace of God. We've earned nothing we have received. We deserve nothing that we've received. We purchase nothing that we've received. Everything that we have in Jesus is given to us by the free grace of God Almighty. If you just don't leave here with any other truth embedded deep in your soul, let that one just like sink deep into you. And then he says, it's through faith. It's through faith. It's grace through faith. And we know from Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing. Finish it. Hearing. I'm I'm cupping my ears. I'm trying to give you like signals. Faith comes by hearing. Good. And hearing by the word of God. Right? And so through grace, by grace, through faith, 
In fact, in this passage, in, in fact, in, in 2, 8, and 9, um, some people want to link the gift. It's a gift of God to the faith, but that's actually not the case grammatically here. Um, the, the gift is feminine in the Greek, and, and then faith is neuter. So that can't be the, the, it's a, it's the genitive, the, the way that the, anyway, I won't get into the Greek stuff. But, but grammatically, faith is not the gift here in the passage. The grace is the gift. The grace is the gift, right? Uh, faith is a gift too. God gives us faith and he, and he gives us his word, which is what we just said, right? In Romans ten seven. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God didn't have to reveal himself to us. He didn't have to give us the Bible. He didn't have to give us his word. It's all, it's all a gift. It's not by works, Paul says. Because again, the result would be our boasting. We say, look what I've done. I've earned God's love. I made God like me. Right? Now, I, I have that personality bent anyway. Like I go into a new room, especially with kids. If you, if you see me around little kids, toddlers and, and preschool age, I have this thing. It's like I'm going to find the most awkward kid in the room, and I'm going to spend the next five to ten minutes making that kid like me. It's just a personal challenge for me. I want to connect with that kid, and then we're buddies from then on. Right? And every once in a while, I'll find a really hard nut case. I can't get the kid to like me. And so then it's like, that just ratchets up my determination, right? I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try even harder. Like, what kind of candy does this kid like? What, what do I need to do to win the affection of, right? But we can't do that with God. We can't, we can't boast about what we've done to get God to like us. Because our, if, if we could save ourselves in some way, a couple of things would happen. One, we'd be, we'd be so insecure. We'd be so insecure. Because we're constantly being asked the question of our, of our own hearts. Am I still at the level I need to be? Or have I done something to move myself down the, down the ratchet? We'd be constantly asking ourselves, am I still saved? Am I still doing what's needed to get God to like me? It'd be this incredibly insecure place. And then the other reality is that if we could save ourselves, we would immediately boast about our effort, which would result in sin, which would render ineffectual our salvation, which we had just earned for ourselves. So we'd be putting ourselves back out of the, we'd be like, I'm saved. I'm such a good person. Oh, shoot, I'm not saved anymore. I got to be good again. And it would be this constant, like it's a bad plan. It's a bad plan. Even if we could manage it and we can't. Let me give you an illustration to, to drive it home. Once there were two men who decided to have a jumping contest. And one was an Olympic champion of the long jump who was in perfect physical condition. The other man was a fat man who huffed and puffed just to walk. And the two decided we're going to have a contest to determine who can jump across the Grand Canyon. The obese man could barely even run. He waddled up to the edge of the cliff and he leaned forward and he managed to jump two feet. And then he fell to his death at the bottom of the canyon. The champion long jumper in perfect physical condition warmed up. He stretched. He took a couple of laps. And then he he ran as fast as he could. He jumped from the edge of the canyon. He cleared over 30 feet of air before he fell to his death at the bottom of the canyon. See, no matter how good we are compared to other people, it's impossible for us to get to heaven based on our own effort. Everybody ends up in the same place, dead at the bottom of the canyon. So maybe you're an Olympic jumper and you can clear 30 feet. Maybe you can like, maybe I, I'm, I'm going to go like five feet maybe. I don't know. What have I got? Everybody ends up in the same place. No matter how good we are, 
It's impossible for us to make it to heaven through our own works and our own effort. The world's most religious person and the world's worst sinner both end up in the pit of hell without Christ's help and God's grace. And that's why he says here, it is the gift of God. I want you to imagine somebody uh, in Stanwood, some wealthy benefactor that you've never met, came to you this afternoon and offered to buy you a brand new house here in the north end of Snohomish County. And you're not modest. Just play along, those of you that are. You're not modest, so you go looking for a really nice house. Somebody else is going to pay for it. And you're looking for a nice house on a little bit of property, right? Because somebody else's dime. And then this person agrees that they're going to make the purchase for you. They're going to buy it. And as this person's handing you the title deed to your new home on your property, you reach into your pocket to get some loose change and you spill some in the mud. And you, oh, sorry. And you, you get some muddy change and you're like, hey, man, I just want, can I just, I just feel like I need to help you. I just want to give some of this to you, man. I just, can, I, can I pay for some of the house? What are you doing? You're insulting the person who made the purchase with your muddy change. <laughs> I got a couple of dimes and a couple of nickels and some pennies. I got some mud on them, but I just feel like I need to help you like, pay for that in some way. It's like, uh, that's like a $1.2 million home. You're giving me pocket change. You just dropped in the mud. What is that? I'm insulted by your effort to try to pay me back for this gift that I've given you. This inestimable gift. And you're going to give me muddy pocket change? Romans 3 says our efforts to pay for our salvation are like filthy rags to God. Salvation is a free gift. And he offers it to us freely. Let us not insult him by thinking there's anything that we can accomplish to gain it for ourselves. Or any way that we could pay it back. When you grasp that reality in the place of humility, what happens is that this great love and deep humility washes over you afresh. You go, oh my goodness. I do not deserve the love and the grace and the salvation of our God. It makes me want to serve him and devote myself to him. And then that leads you right into the next thought here in verse 10. We are his workmanship. The Greek word is poiema, and it means a masterpiece, like Michelangelo's David or or, or some great master uh, painting by one of the great artists, right? It's a masterpiece. You were created in Christ Jesus. That means that when you came to faith and you put your hope and you went to God for salvation because of what Jesus has done, he started forming you into what you're eventually going to be. You're in process, but he's making a masterpiece. This was the beautiful part yesterday about the memorial service for Jason Parker that we had here. Because I only knew the dude like a year and a half. But the first time I met him, and he, well, I met him on the phone, and then he came to church, and I had no idea that he was this huge bulking guy. And, and this scary guy comes into the back of our church. We were meeting somewhere else, and he's in the back row, and he's just weeping through the whole service. And I'm like... That guy's either really broken because of the Holy Spirit or he's going to kill us all. I don't know what's going to happen. He's a big guy and I don't think I can take him. What are we going to do, right? This just kind of had me a little on edge. And then I got to know him. 
And he got to, he got to tell me about his life and, and where he'd been and what his heart had been like towards people and how God was changing him. And over the next 18 months, I watched this incredible transformation happen in this person and, and just begin to love his heart for Jesus and people and watch him, despite the difficulties of, of his physical condition, go out of his way to love people well. And, to, and, and you just go, okay, that, that's the result of his best human effort to be his best person right now. He probably read some Joel Osteen books. That's what that is. No, that's the power of the Holy Spirit changing a person who's put their faith in Jesus. And and in that place of humility going, I did nothing to deserve his grace and forgiveness. I've done nothing to, to be called his child. And yet God has loved me. And then this humility and love washes over you and you go, how can I touch the lives of other people? What can I give up that I have and all the surplus in my life that will help me be more effective on mission for the kingdom? That's the heart. Because here's what, God, here's what Paul says, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't we just say good works don't merit our salvation? That's right. That's right. On that side of the equation... Good works don't get you there. But when you're saved, one of the things God made you for is that the, so you're your conduit. Right? You're, a, you're, a, you're a piece of PVC pipe that's redirecting the grace of God. It's being poured into the top of that conduit. And then you're redirecting that grace into the lives of other people. Now, if, if what you're doing is you're the stoppage, you got some plug in your pipe, that's not good. Because all that grace is not just for you to keep. All the blessings we've been talking about here in chapter 1 and over into chapter 2 are not yours to keep. They're yours to use on mission. God is blessing you. You are now a conduit of grace into the lives of other people. And this is the way that God shapes us into this masterpiece. He says we were prepared in advance. uh, These works prepared in advance for us to walk in them. And you go, well, wait a minute. It's still the same issue. Like Paul says uh, that works can't save us. And then James says, if you you say you love Jesus, show me by your works. And it's like, yeah, that's 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 a really clear delineation. If you're saved, one of the things that will naturally begin to happen in you is that you'll want to do things that please God. Because of his Holy Spirit living in you. But doing things that please God to get you saved never works. You can't get there, right? Do you, do you guys are tracking with the difference? Okay, I want to be sure. I don't want to cause confusion here. So our works, um, what would we say? When it comes to the gospel message that we proclaim and that we live, our good works verify that gospel message. The way that we live validates the fact that we really are saved. Right? When we go and we do good things for other people, and we love them with the love of Jesus in practical ways, it verifies that we really are saved. And then the words that we say about Jesus clarify the gospel message. Because I love this with a group of pastors and one church that was represented said, man, this winter we've got this great, we, for two years we've had this ministry where we cut down some trees on this property and we chop up all the wood and then we deliver it to the homes of these people who, who heat their houses with, you know, with wood burning stoves. And we just give them the wood as a ministry, make sure they're warm all winter long. I thought that's great. So, so when, at what point do you talk about Jesus in that conversation? Well, we don't do that at all. We just give them the wood. So, okay. Well, that's a good thing to do. Do you, do you, do you invite them to church? No, we just give them the wood. 
There's got to be, there's got to be both, right? We can't just go preach. We should. We can't just go tell people about Jesus. We should. We've got to live in such a way that it verifies the message. And then we've got to use words to clarify our deeds. Because if we just do good things for people, we never tell them about Jesus. I think, oh, that dude's a righteous dude. Thanks. Right? It's got to be both. It's got to be both. So salvation brings glory to God because it manifests the nature and character of his person in us. It reveals his love for mankind through us. It reveals his goodness and grace and his thoughtful provision for us and then for other people through us. It manifests the holiness of God in us. It restores uh, right now, just in, in part, but later in full, our ability to reflect the goodness of God and to manifest the goodness of God. And so Jonah, Jonah would say this. I love this verse out of Jonah. We would probably go through Jonah at some point in the next year. But Jonah says in this moment when the ship is tossing to and fro and all the sailors are praying to their gods, he says, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. In every and all aspect, it is a work of God on behalf of man and is in no sense a work of man on behalf of God. It is a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And then Jesus would say from the cross, he says to Telestai, right? It is finished. That there's nothing left to be done in providing for mankind's salvation. God has completed it through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he raised him from the dead to prove it to us. So here's the proof. I raised him from the dead so that you can know that I've made a way for you to be saved. Christ's death on the cross was a work accomplished for the entire world. And provisionally speaking, it provided redemption and reconciliation and propitiation for every man, woman, boy, and girl who ever lived. Now, the problem is you've got to accept it by faith. It's only applied when you receive it by faith. It's the grace of God extended to you that must be received through faith. And so man's responsibility is now to accept the gift by faith, faith alone in Jesus Christ. And my question to you is, have you done that? Have you done that? Are there people in your life that you know need to do that? Right? Are they just at the beginning stage of just beginning to see sin for what it is? Just beginning to understand God for who he is? How do you move them from this place? The condition of fallen man to the place of being saved. The condition of saved humanity. How do we help people get from here to there? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But man, you play a role. You better believe you play a role. Your willingness to let God use you in the lives of people is an important part of the process of moving people from being objects of God's wrath to being recipients of his grace. Don't, don't dismiss your part in that. God set it up that way to be his workmanship, his masterpiece, to do good works that he, he provided in advance for you to walk in. I would hope that today as we talk about the nature of salvation, how a person is saved, you begin to look at all the other religious systems that you're familiar with in the world and go, not alike, not alike, different, different than. I love this quote from Dr. Ravi Zacharias. He says, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is and is not, and accordingly of defining life's purpose. Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions, 
but also a caricatured view of even the best known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. And I would just amend Dr. Zacharias' statement to say this. Only Christianity, only the gospel of Jesus Christ says you are saved by the grace of God alone and not by any work or effort on your part. By God's grace alone, through putting faith in him alone. In fact, we've talked about this before, but I love this illustration a pastor that I love and familiar with uh, working out of the gym met a Muslim guy that had just joined the gym and they began to talk and here's a pastor and, and a, a Muslim and they, you know, they begin to get to know each other talking about their religious systems and sharing different stuff and, and asking questions and just letting each other talk. It was a very good relationship that they were building. And at one point uh, the pastor said, can, can I just clarify for you what I what I perceive to be the, this the, the most basic distinction between our two religious systems. And it doesn't have anything to do with Allah or the prophet Muhammad or any of these things. It, it's, it's, the, it's, it's four letters, two and four. He says, D-O-D-O-N-E. And the, and the Muslim friend that he was working with and building that relationship was quizzical. And he looked at him and said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, your religious system is a D.O. system. There are things that you must do. You must go on Hajj pilgrimage. You must salat. You must pray five times a day. You must, there, are, there are five pillars of Islam and you must do these things in order to please Allah. And at the end of the day, Allah is capricious and you still don't know that he's accepted you. And maybe at some point you'll die and maybe you'll receive a reward in heaven in the afterlife. But there are things that you must do to get Allah's his, his merit his favor to get him to like you and accept you. D.O. Your religion is a D.O. religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is D.O.N.E. It's done. We can never do it. We can never do enough. We can never say enough, be enough, accomplish enough to save ourselves. Jesus has done it for us. And that is the thing that makes the distinction between Christianity and every other religious system in the world. All of them are D.O. And we're saying, no, it is D-O-N-E. It's already been done. Every once in a while, a very well-meaning friend will post this quote, which is attributed widely, and I think it may be accurate, I don't know, to St. Francis of Assisi. But it just drives me nuts when they do it. Just, as, just, as a, just so you know. I share the quote with you you probably file it away. Don't ever post that on social media again because Pastor Mike will hunt me down and shave my cat. Um, here's, the, here's the quote. Attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I want to just, for a long time, I have just hated that quote with a vehemence. But I think I understand where it's coming from, especially in the Middle Ages. If this is St. Francis, in fact, saying this, you're speaking out of a culture where the words of the church, ex cathedra, out of the church had power and people just had to obey them blindly, right? And so, so maybe what he's saying here, and I'll just give him uh, credit and I'll assume the best, is that, hey, again, our deeds, the way that we live, needs to match up with the words that we say. And I think that that's true. But this idea of preach the gospel, you use words if necessary. Well, I would say preach the gospel with words which are totally necessary. Right? Well, what does Romans say? 
How will they know unless someone goes to them? And who will go unless God sends them? How are they here? They've got to hear the gospel message. And they're not going to hear it unless somebody goes and preaches to them. So the words are necessary. Uh, so, so live your life in such a way that your life gives your message credibility and authority. Our deeds verify our words and our words clarify our deeds. But they both have to be present in the gospel presentation. And, and one of the most challenging books I've ever read was by a guy named Mark Cahill out of Atlanta. He, he played ball with Charles Barkley at Auburn University. And then, um, and, then he, and then he just got radically saved in college. And then he just started just telling everybody he saw about Jesus. And that became his whole life. And so he, he said in one of his books, he said, if you see me, somebody asked him, he said, well, what if people from your church saw you um, sitting in a car talking to a woman uh, that's not your wife, and she's a prostitute. What would they think? He said, people in my church would think, there goes Mark witnessing to a prostitute. Because he's just like crazy about sharing Jesus with everybody. He just doesn't care, right? And, and I love, uh, the book is called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Do you know what the one thing is? You can't tell people the gospel message to get them saved. Because once you're there, everybody that's there is already in, right? The only opportunity you're going to have to tell people about Jesus is now. So he says, it's about sharing Jesus with people who don't know him. And in one of the chapters of the book, um, he has this incredible paradigm shift as he's describing his own heart from this American Western mentality. People who've been in church for a while have this mentality. He says, man, do I have to share the gospel with people? Do I have to have spiritual conversations with people at work? Do I have to build relationships for the sake of the gospel? That's, that's the mentality most of us in the church. And Mark argues that's an upside down and backwards mentality. He says, if you've been saved by Jesus, by the grace and love of God, you don't have to tell people about Jesus. You get to. You get to. You get to tell people about how he has saved you. You get to tell people about how awesome he is. You get to tell people that there's a God that loves them has provided a way for them to be saved. And that is a different mentality. That's a different mentality. It is an honor and a privilege to get to tell people about Jesus. And we have got to shift our mindset as the people of God. Every week, um, my friend Vic Doss back in Georgia at, at Watkinsville First Baptist Church, they have about six to 700 college students pack into their church there. It's amazing. It was really great to be a part of the early days of that campus ministry, the college ministry. But just imagine six to 700 college students in addition. So, you know, about 15 to 1600 people on a Sunday morning and over half of those are college students. And this is what they say to those college students every Sunday. And, and you should, you're going to hear this for the first time. And then you're going to hear it like a hundred times over the next six months. I'm going to say it every chance I get. Do what you're good at for the glory of God. Do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Do what you're good at for the glory of God. Do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And maybe the mission is here. Maybe you're already in your career position and God's got you in a company or he's got you in a place of employment or he's got you in school in this season or whatever you're doing in your life. He's got you right where he wants you. Do what you're good at for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. I don't want to see half of your faces in two or three years. I love you. Like, go tell people about Jesus. Time is short. 
say, really, seriously? You, like, we're not a big church. It's like half of you go away. Yeah. It's the only way we're going to grow. is if we plant more churches and we send missionaries, we send people out to fulfill the Great Commission, and Peter would say, and we hasten the day of the coming of our Lord. That's it. That's the mission. The mission is not to grow a community so we can huddle together and feel good about our Christian community. I love community with all of you. And I love when we get together and we have life group and we apply these truths to our own lives and we wrestle with these things. But here's the reality. Like some of you, God may call you to go. Some of you, God may call you to stay. And, and embed yourself in this community in the north end of Snohomish County. You need to know that the projections that we looked at when we planted this church, that this area of the county is going to triple in population density in the next 10 years. Because there's nowhere for Seattle urban sprawl to go except north. You can't go south because there are two other big cities to the south. You can't go west because there's water, right? And you can't go east because there are mountains, And the only way the sprawl can go is to come north. And we're going to get all these people that are moving from all over the country to take jobs at Boeing and Microsoft and all these other places, Amazon, as all these places continue to grow, we will see our community become more and more densely populated. What that means is we have more opportunities to share the gospel with people. Praise him, right? Now, as a property owner who likes my space and a little bit of privacy, part of me goes, I don't like that. But as a pastor and as a missionary and as a preacher of the gospel, I go, yes, bring them so we can tell them so we can love them. What are you going to do? How are you going to use the gifts that God has given you? How are you going to hone and cultivate those gifts and talents and abilities? How are you going to put them to strategic use for the kingdom of God? So do what you're good at for the glory of God. Do it strategically on mission right where you are. Some of you and some of you need to go somewhere else and do it uh, for the mission of the kingdom. Respond to the gospel. If you're not saved today, today's your day. Today's your day. Don't wait. If you are saved, you may may not have known it until now, but I'm just going to tell you, you're on mission now. You're saved. You're like, okay, you're on mission. There's no furlough. Like, no, I'm just going to lay over here for a little while. No, you're on mission. How will you respond to the gospel call this morning? Lord Jesus, continue to pour out your grace on our church and on our community, whether it's to see people saved coming into the kingdom for the very first time or to move us as Christ followers to the place where we're embracing the process of becoming your masterpiece. We're embracing what it means to do good works for the kingdom of God. We're embracing what it means to be on mission as the people of God. Um, Lord, we need you to accomplish that work in us. I I can stand up here and preach for 30 or 45 minutes, but it doesn't make any difference if your spirit's not moving in the hearts of people. Shift our thinking, Lord. Help us to embrace what it means to be on mission. We ask it in your name.